Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we do our weekly political roundup with former Toronto Star journalist Richard Brennan. What does David Johnson's decision to forego the inquiry into Chinese interference fail to do? Warren Kinsella writes about it, and he'll talk about it with us. And will Bill 97 harm the future of agriculture in Ontario? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about provincial politics and there's a lot going on here of course with the the the, the stalactis plant in in windsor uh some other concerns happening but most importantly i guess as far as uh, a lot of people in the gta are concerned right now is the uh introduction introduction of the legislation uh that's basically going to break up peel region as of january 1st 2025 uh no more regional government according to uh, what doug ford wants to do anyway and brampton mayor patrick brown says it's going to take some negotiations there could be advantages for everyone um, if there's compensation. If Mississauga is able to walk away and not repay what was invested in Mississauga, then um, it would be uh, theft. Uh, it would be, be theft from Brampton and Caledon. Oh, pretty strong words. Well, Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie says, yeah, there are going to be payments, but going the other way. I think if there are any alimony payments, they'll be coming to Mississauga. The region appeal was created by Bill Davis to fund the growth and the infrastructure of Brampton. As we were going through our growth phase and our tax dollars were going to the region appeal, we paid for 70% of the costs of the region appeal, Brampton 25%. So uh, the battle lines have been set, I guess, and uh, we'll use that as a starting off point with our first guest today, our weekly roundup with uh, Politics Ontario, and uh, maybe dabble a little bit into municipal politics, too, because they're all related here. Richard Brennan joins us, a former journalist with the Toronto Star, covering both Queen's Park and Parliament Hill. Uh, Badger, lots to dissect here. Let's let's start with uh, what's the pending divorce, I guess, of, of, of the three main participants in Peel Region. Uh, it's only been a couple of days now, and it's not going well, is it? Well, where do we start to unpack this one, Bill? I'll tell you, yeah, this, good is point. A, this is a strange thing going on right now in, in Mississauga and in Peel. Uh, you know, not only do we have the breakup of, uh, of the municipalities in Peel or the breakup of the regional municipality of Peel, but then we have the mayor of Mississauga, Bonnie Crombie, saying that she's thinking of running for the leadership of the Liberal Party. So we've got we've got two things going on here at once. We got, you know, the finally Mississauga, you know, gets the bragging rights that they're going to go it on go on their own as they wanted to over many years ago. And this is a real feather in her cap, I I would think being able to finally convince the province to allow this to happen. But then she says, well, I think, I think I'm going to run for the, you know, the leadership of the Ontario Liberal Party. And I'm going, well, well, hold on a second. Didn't you just push for years for this? And you wanted this? You wanted Mississauga to stand alone? And now you're abandoning it. And I just, I'm still scratching my head here. And she says, of course, that she's going to stay on uh, as mayor for at least the, the time being. Well, the Liberal leadership, uh, such as it is, the convention, uh, the, the uh, process, I guess, that's not going to be till the end of the year anyway, is it? No, it, it's a long way away. But uh, the way the way the Premier's acting, you would think it's tomorrow, the way he's uh, getting pretty squeamish at the, at the thought of her be, becoming uh, the Liberal leader. Uh, uh, it's quite amazing, his reaction to it. Anyway, well, it's the, interesting. Whole, the whole thing is kind of upside down and backwards at the at the moment. Who who owns who pays who? 
you know, who, who, who gets to, who gets the cat or the dog when the separation happens? It's, it's kind of crazy. Well, and uh, I know in the, in the Hamilton area, we went through the opposite, of course. We went through amalgamation where they, it was a forced marriage as opposed to a forced divorce. Uh, and, and it was ugly. I mean, you know, oh, it's going to save you money. There are going to be fewer politicians. As soon as somebody says fewer politicians, everybody says, hey, that's a great idea. We don't like politicians. Uh, but then you realize, okay, that's going to be a, a whole mishmash of who's responsible for what, who's going to be compensated. And, and Patrick Brown's right. There are going to be winners and losers in this. You don't just walk away and say, well, that was a lot of fun, guys. Uh, you know, best luck going forward. Uh, there's a lot of money been invested. And, and as of now, you take something like a water treatment plant. Okay, where's that located? Well, where does that leave the other municipalities? Uh, do they have to build their own now? What about police service? I mean, there's a lot of questions here uh, that the province has basically just kind of thrown at them and said, well, you guys figure it out. Well, there's a huge bill attack attached to all this. I mean, to think that this is going to be a, a cheap breakup is just beyond the pale. Like you pointed out just a couple things. There's all kinds of things that are uh, happening, will happen, because municipalities are going to go their separate ways. Well, like you say, you know, you know, uh, water treatment, waste treatment. Who will each municipality have to have their own now because they're not together, and that'll be at expense. Where's what's policing? I mean, policing is right up in the air. Nobody knows who's going to have what police department now there's you know, the Peel Regional Police Service right now but maybe maybe Brampton won't want Peel to do it and uh, so are they could just be in a Mississauga force it's I don't know somebody hasn't proven to me that the status quo doesn't work I mean it, there is a there's a lot of politicians fine you know politicians don't make a lot of money so that's that's not the big expense here so where's it all going? And nobody seems to know. And the province certainly isn't pointing the way. Like you said, they're just leaving it up to the municipalities to figure it all out. Well, yesterday we talked to Niagara Falls Mayor Jim Diodati. And, and, and the reason why is because even uh, the premier himself has said that, you know, Niagara is going to be on that list. They may be next, uh, you know, to dissolve Niagara region. And, and Mayor Diodati suggested, well, maybe a hybrid, maybe something like, you know, the police can still exist as a regional police. Uh, and, and, and that sort of makes sense on one level, okay? So they might take, you know, one, one of the pieces of dynamite out of the impending explosion here. But then if you're going to do that and if you're going to say, okay, and, and sewer services and water treatment is going to be done the way it's always been done, then why break up? I mean, what's the sense in doing it then? Well, Bill, uh, you probably saw this as well as I did, but somebody's also suggested that there just be one big Mississauga and it, it, they take in Brampton. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, like like Hamilton became, you know, a bigger Hamilton with the Ancaster and, and Dundas and, and Flamborough and all that. So they're just saying, well, wh why not one big Mississauga uh, as a city rather than uh, having the, the two municipalities side by each? Well, and poor people in Brampton to go through that. I mean, way back when, I guess in the 1980s, uh, there was Brampton and there was Bramalee uh, side by side. And that's where the growth area was. Brampton was the old part of the town. Bramalee was where the growth was going on, the new industrial growth and residential growth. They, they, they've become just Brampton now. Uh, I don't think they want to be swallowed up by Mississauga. And, and what about poor Caledon here? I mean, that's a nice little community just north of, of Brampton. Uh, you know, where do they go? 
Well, you know already they they don't have pure regional police. They have the Ontario Provincial Police. Yeah, as as their force, and it, it they're completely different communities. Brampton and Mississauga are nowhere near what uh, what Caledon is. It's a, it's a rural municipality. Uh, so I, I I can't see. I maybe they might uh, Brampton might steal a chunk of. Uh, of Caledon, but I can't see uh, Caledon becoming a big part of a big Mississauga or or a big part of uh, a New Brampton. I, I just don't see it. They're just disparate uh, communities. So anyway, there's a lot to go in. He says he wants to get it done in time for the next uh, uh, municipal elections. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's, I, I'm going to watch with great interest to see just how they do this because when you start to de-amalgamate, and what was one of the arguments all the time? Uh, you know, we went through amalgamation here. They went through it in Toronto, of course, first, and then uh, Sudbury, uh, Chatham, Kent, a number of it. But the argument against, you know, when once we realized how expensive it was, was you can't unscramble the egg. Well, now they're trying to unscramble the egg, and let's see how that goes. Well, uh, and no, I don't see Bill, other than, you know, Mississauga wants to be its own city, fine. But the point is, you know, it, I, I can't see that there's a big flaw in what they exist now. But, uh, you know, you're, as you say, unscramble the egg. Well, I, I'll tell you, somebody's going to have egg all over their face because this is going to be a huge endeavor and the cost is going to be staggering. And I don't think anybody is really taking that into account, including uh, Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississauga, wanting wanting to have her municipality go its own way. It it's a it's a big it's a big job to to do uh, to do it, and I don't think, in my mind at least, that it, it's worth it. I, I just it it seems to be they're doing it for just the sake of doing it, and, and you know you've got to have a better reason than that. I, I want to dovetail from this, and I know it's a bit of a, a, a sharp right here to get back into uh, uh, what's going on provincially, but it's also tied to what's happening municipally. And, and I want to talk about specifically about the encampment issue. And it's not a Hamilton issue, of course. It's happening in, in cities right across the province. Uh, Hamilton Council's wrestling with it and coming up with, I think, some not-so-good ideas about how they want to deal with this. Uh, but they keep pointing to the province, and the province keeps saying, look, at you know, I that, that's it, guys. I mean, you guys, you have to find your own solutions to this. Uh, I mean, one of the ones they've talked about here is, is, is about, and we're going to talk about this on our last call segment later on, about basically if you can sponsor uh, one of the homeless people. I don't know if that means they set up in your backyard or, or what's going on here, but it just seems to be a little bit bizarre here. And the province seems to have just stepped away and said that we're not going to touch this yet. They have a responsibility here, don't they? Well, of course they do, but they wouldn't. They, they are certainly not letting on that they do. Uh, it is just one of many things that the province has downloaded that kind of uh, service to the municipalities, uh, you know, mental health and, and uh, housing and, and all that, all that's been just downloaded over the years at a time when municipalities are scrambling here to find money to, to keep afloat and to provide all the services they are. I think the province has a huge role to pay, you know, to play in this, but they certainly aren't, uh, they aren't stepping forward. I mean, there are a whole bunch of reasons. I don't know, you've, you've looked at some of the encampments around downtown Hamilton and, and we've, many of us have driven by them over the last little while. It's tragic and there's uh, 
probably for every hundred people that are in those encampments, there's a hundred different stories as to why. Uh, but when you look at some of the the, the surrounding policies around that, uh, some people are out of there because they got booted out of their apartment. Some of them are out of there because during COVID they couldn't pay the rent anymore and lost lost the roof over their head. Uh, and these are provincial policies. And add on to that, of course, the fact that the Ford government has taken away a lot of the uh, the checks and balances with rent controls and and a number of uh, tribunals and things of this nature, and made it that much more difficult for people who eventually just say to hell with it. I'm just going to have to live in a tent for now. So they they have a role in how this happened, not exclusively. There were a lot of other things that happened too, uh, but some of their policies have exacerbated an ugly situation already, and they they just don't seem to want to step up. Well, no, and nobody's like nobody's really. I'm, municipalities are saying, "Hey, we need help," but you don't see the public clamoring for it. I mean, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take the public to put pressure on the uh, provincial government to come, you know. To come up with a bag full of money and say, here, we, we, we understand we have a responsibility and here's what we're prepared to do. But Bill, what I can't get through my head, and thick as it is, uh, is the fact that nobody's come up with a solution for this yet. This has been going on for a long time now. And we had people sleeping in the streets and we have tents and, and, you know, all kinds of associated problems. And we still can't come to grips with it. And do you to think that the solution is to allow somebody to set up a tent in your backyard? Brother, come on. If that's the best you've got, that's pretty weak. Well, I, and I know that there's a number of other things that are happening here, too, and that they've talked about setting up like tent cities, I suppose, too. I, I can't see that as a long-time solution. No. I mean, you're just you're just moving it from one spot to another. Does it, that certainly doesn't address the problem. We have to find housing for these people. For the, you know, the homeless, we have to find services for the uh, people with mental illness. And, you know, it's, you know, there's a mixture there. That's where the solution is, is to, you know, a combined effort of housing and, and services for people to, to live in a, in a, with a, with a roof over their head, not a tent. But it costs money, and I understand, you know, the municipalities don't have the bread for this, but that's where the solution right is. It's, it's not to set up a, you know, set up a, a particularly designated area for people live in tents. I mean, that's, that's just not on. And as you mentioned, I think I know we got to wrap it up, but I mean, there's a, a series of things. This is not a new problem. This is a problem that got huge. Uh, you know, things about like, uh, you know, rent evictions, people getting booted out of their places, uh, insufficient social service funding, especially for people on things like ODSB, et cetera. Uh, you know, the, the checks that these people receive don't even cover what the average rent is for a one-bedroom apartment or even a bachelor apartment in, in Hamilton, and it's even worse in, in other cities right now. Those things were all there, but the 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 collateral damage from that was something that, oh, that's terrible. Yeah, we need to do something about that. The pandemic came along, and that lit the fuse to this and just made this thing explode. Uh, and now they don't know what to do with it. I mean, they, they should have and could have addressed some of those issues pre-pandemic, and they didn't. And now it's it's raging out of control. 
Well, the, the pandemic can't, you know, I agree with you. The pandemic had an effect. There's no question. But like you say, this is this has been going on for some time. It's been exacerbated. No question about that. Bill, I'll tell you, I, I go way back, as you know, in this. And I, I, I can remember when, when Bill Davis closed the psychiatric hospitals. This is where, you know, it'd be St. Thomas or, or, or yep. uh, Lakeview or whatever it was called in Toronto. Um, 999 Queen Street. Well, and, and you know, it was right across the province. They were closed. Yeah. And people were just, they had nowhere to turn. These weren't people that were locked up all the time by any question or imagination. These were people where it was, you know, psychiatric problems could go and get treatment. And then it was, they were closed and they were said, oh, there's going to be all kinds of services, all, you know, sundry of services available. Well, it never happened. It never happened to the degree that it was needed. And that goes back, believe me, to the 1970s because I covered it. Exactly. Uh, Badger, we got to leave it there. We're just out of time. But uh, as always, thank you for your input on this. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Richard Brennan, former journalist uh, with The Star and uh, covering Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many years. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interference uh, accusations continue to flow, of course, about uh, foreign interference in Canadian politics. we already know about uh, Mr. Johnston's uh, initial report, as he calls it, that was released this past Monday, and a lot of pushback from the politicians and a lot of people, I think, that had pretty high expectations about what Mr. Johnson was going to recommend. And as we all know now, the recommendation was to not uh, go the length of, of a full inquiry. Uh, Warren Kinsella writes about that in the Toronto Sun earlier this week. He uh, says, what the decision to forego Chinese interference inquiry fails to do. Uh, Warren, of course, is a former special assistant to Jean Chrétien and a war room director for the Dalton McGinney government, actually three different times that McGinney was elected. Uh, Warren was involved in those uh, re-election campaigns, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about that. Warren, great to have you on the program. Thanks for the time, my friend. Thank you, my friend. And I just wanted to warn you in advance, in case you want to talk to a proud uh, former Hamilton resident, I've got Brian Lilly from the Toronto Sun is beside me. We just had oh. breakfast, so if you want to get a br- better commentary, he's right here for your for your use. Well, as Brian and I have talked in the past, the best journalists come from Hamilton. You know, the, the Brian and Jim Travers <laughs> and so many other great folks over the years. So, I agree. Uh, it, it's, it's, I think it's in our DNA here. It's just what happens. Uh, we'll get to Brian in a second. I'd be glad to get him into on, on the conversation. Uh, the piece that you wrote in the Sunday actually outlines a number of things that, that, that did not happen because of Johnston's report. And I know that there was an affiliation, and we knew that there was a friendship between the families, et cetera, et cetera. But, Warren, I get the sense that in spite of all that, some people thought, yeah, but this is David Johnson. He's, he's got to do the right thing here. Uh, and in spite of all those other extraneous factors that we mentioned, he's got to recommend an inquiry. And uh, he didn't. Were you shocked by the decision? I was shocked. And in my advanced age, I didn't think I could get shocked by anything anymore. It was a shock. You know, I mean, David Johnson, for sure, we all knew that he was probably not the right guy for the job because of his relationship with Justin Trudeau and the Trudeau family going back many years because of his involvement with the Trudeau Foundation, which received um, tens of thousands of dollars from a Chinese front organization. You know, we knew that he was not the right guy for the job. But, you know, as you point out, he had this pretty impressive CV you know, Order of Canada and a university president and honorary degrees coming at the yin yang. And um, so we thought he would actually do what needed to be done, which is call for a full public inquiry, you know, with 
with some guardrails to ensure that national security isn't compromised. And he didn't do it. And he issued a petulant, and I, you know, I say this advisedly, despicable report that basically uh, whitewashes uh, Chinese criminality in our democracy. And that's wrong. And uh, he's going to wear that. That's going to follow him around till the end of uh, his days, I think. It was a big, big mistake on David Johnson's part. Well, that was part of the the article that you wrote, of course, is that, as like, you say, I, I think a lot of people had a lot of respect for David Johnson, notwithstanding his his, his human, human foibles, etc. Uh, but for all the good that he's done, you know, you know, chancellor at a couple of major universities, uh, the work that he did, of course, as governor general, uh, does this one decision that he's made here uh, cancel all that stuff out? Certainly taints it. It does. Well, you know, in politics, we like to say those of us who have done campaigns, you're only remembered for your last campaign. They don't remember any of the other stuff that you did. And so it's always good to quit while you're ahead, because, you know, if you come back for that one last, it's like the last ski run of the day. That's where you break your leg. And I think that's what happened with David Johnson here is, you know, maybe he thought that, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but my suspicion is he thought his CV would win the day. And people would look at it and say, oh, he could not possibly be a patsy for Justin Trudeau. And maybe he feels that he wasn't. Maybe he wasn't. But that is the perception. As of this morning, every single newspaper editorial board in this country, every single one, including the Toronto Star, has editorialized in favor of a public inquiry and editorialized against David Johnson. And that is meaningful. When the Trudeau liberals lose the Toronto Star and CBC, as they seem to have done, that's a big, big deal. Uh, let's shoot it over to Brian. I wanted to get his read on it, too, if you don't mind. All right, here, I'm just going to put you on the speaker here. Oh, even better, even better. Uh, okay, here, here is the, the great, the, the one, the only, Brian Lilly, pride of the hammer. We're, get, we're getting to two for one here. We've got uh, Warren Kinsella, of course, and Brian Lilly from the Toronto Sun. Uh, Brian, glad you could hop on with you. I hope uh, Warren paid for breakfast with the kind of money he's making from the from the Suncor these days. <laughs> yes, he did. Uh, yeah, there, there you go. Uh, your impressions, I know you've been writing extensively about it this week, but I, the, I, the question here that a lot of people are asking anyway, and we've talked about this on our program, uh, is, is the basic message from, from Johnston was, you just got to trust me. I've seen things that you cannot see, and this is what I think. Uh, I don't know if Canadians are ready to accept that as, as a final answer. No, and I don't think that we should accept that as a final answer. And I know that the, the message from Johnston... And the message from the Trudeau government is, well, we couldn't possibly have a public inquiry because there's national security at stake. Uh, Paul Martin called the Commission of Inquiry into Meher Arar back in 2004. It ran for more than two years. Uh, That report came out after Stephen Harper had uh, won an election, and it exonerated Meher Arar and excoriated our uh, national security agent, CSIS, and the RCMP. And you know what? We, we didn't have national state secrets revealed. We didn't uh, compromise our intelligence or our relationship with our Five Eyes partners. The Americans were, in, and what they had done and what they had said was a big part of that inquiry. So, of course, we can do it. And, and we can give Canadians the trust that Johnston says is central to democracy, that that trust is missing. Just trust me. Well, Why? Because I asked the Prime Minister if he saw anything bad happen, and he said no. Uh, the, 
I, I, the comparator I used, Brian, was, you know, because it's more, one of the more recent ones, uh, was the Mueller investigation south of the border. And that was actually, again, about foreign interference. In this case, it was Russia on that U.S. election. Uh, and again, that took a long, long time. Uh, and there was a sensitivity there about, you know, state secrets and, and, you know, security and things of this nature. Yet he came out with a report. Now, you know, we, we can argue about the validity of the report itself, but they were able to skirt those issues. You can discuss this and, and say, OK, I can't get into that. Or we said a lot of pages redacted. But Johnson's reply seemed to be, well, let's not even go that, through that door. Uh, that way, just, you know, we're not even going to have to make the determination about what's going to be secret and what's not. We just won't talk about it. And that is not sunlight being the best disinfectant when that happens. That is uh, someone who is close to the prime minister. You know, they bragged about being close in media interviews in 2010, in 2016, in public comments Trudeau made as Johnston retired in 2017. They talked for years about how close they were. And then after it became controversial this week, they're pretending they've never been friends. Um, I'm sorry, that doesn't wash. So you've got someone close to the PM saying, nothing to see here. Anybody that questions that is is somehow you know wrong and, and evil. I, no, we, we have questions that we need answered. And having your Uncle Dave from down the lake come by and, and, and do a, an investigation, uh, that, that's not how we do things. I, I'd love for my Uncle Bobby to be the one that decides... Uh, whether I'm guilty of something or not, but that's not how things work. There's another element to this too, and I want to get the, the opinion from both of you on this, uh, and that's the implication that, that Johnson made in his report that basically said, "You're right, bro. First, was nothing to see here, but Part B, they'll go to the media again. You know, these guys are blowing stuff out of proportion. It's not. It's yes, it's an important issue, but it's not as important as the media would have you think it right now. Uh, and that seems to be a popular thing in politics. You know, when you, first of all you deny, and then second of all, it's it's all the media's fault because you know they took a little doc." doc you know, a, a leaked document and all of a sudden made a big deal out of this. Uh, we've heard information since then, not from the government, but certainly from CSIS, uh, that it is a big deal. Uh, I mean, what does that do to credibility? What does it do to the relationship uh, between our intelligence agencies and the government? Well, that, Warren here, just on that, oh. you know, this is, um, uh, this is something that Justin Trudeau now does a lot. With SNC-Lavla, he said the Globe and Mail was lying and wrong. Well, they weren't. They were right. And with the Aga Khan, he said, there's nothing to see here, and the media's got it wrong. And, w and that wasn't so. We got it right. Like, that is the Trump M.O., and it does not work for Justin Trudeau every time. Whenever Justin Trudeau says the media's got it wrong, that says to me we've got it right. And, like, it's just a bad strategy because all he's doing, now those of us in the news media are going to be determined to prove him wrong and say, no, in fact, it, it, it is right. Like, it's like, Mr. Trudeau, if the media's got it wrong, why did you expel a senior Chinese diplomat? You, you know, we didn't make that one up, and you, you ended up finding out that we were right. So I don't think he's going to scare away the media. I think we're going to keep digging into this story, and he's not going to like the result. And on the, um, the way that Johnston went through and was fact-checking the media, there's only one that he said definitively was wrong, and that was the report that said Handon, the now former Liberal MP, had advocated for the two Michaels to stay in jail. That, he said, was definitively wrong. And we don't have proof one way or the other. But he says, well, I've looked at the, the evidence, and that's not true. The other things, he tried to pick apart. Like the story that Sam Cooper at Global broke um, last year about the 11 MPs getting money. 
Well, the government has consistently said, oh, we know nothing about MPs getting money. In Johnston's report, he says there is intelligence that shows China tried to do this. We don't know if they succeeded in getting the money out. Um, but it was seven liberal MP, uh, several liberal candidates, or seven, and four uh, conservative candidates. That's all in there. And then he picks apart on small things like, well, the report said it was a network. We don't have evidence that it was a network. Okay, but there were 11, and 11 candidates that China wanted to give money to because they thought these guys will be better for our purposes than their opponents. Uh, you know, you're nitpicking over whether it's a, a network or not. This plan existed. Uh, Got to cut it here, guys. We're just about out of time. But I, I find it interesting, though, in context, that after Mr. Johnson's report on Monday, uh, not 48 hours later, the CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Agency, uh, issued a report saying that uh, foreign interference is the greatest strategic threat facing Canada's national security. And, and the, the, the essence of their message is, if you don't believe us, believe with the five eyes, because they're the ones that gave us the report. Uh, so, you know, then you're calling the U.S. secret uh, intelligence agencies, the Australian, the U.K., you're calling them liars, too. It's not true. Uh, and it, I think it puts this whole thing in context. And I, I know you're, you're both, you know, award-winning journalists, you guys, uh, but obviously, you know, this is not over. Uh, and, and the Sam Coopers and, and, and you know, the Bob Fifes and, and the Brian Lillies and the Warren Kinsellas are going to continue, as others will, uh, to try to find out what's going on. Uh, and we look forward to your reporting on that. And thank you guys both. It's an unexpected pleasure to get a two-for-one here. And uh, we really appreciate the input from both of you. Right. All right. Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks, man. Take care. Warren Kinsella and uh, Brian Lilly uh, with their feelings and their thoughts about what's going on in Ottawa these days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, uh, we were talking about uh, Bill 97 here in the province of Ontario. Uh, and that is the Helping Home Buyers Protecting Tenants Act, uh, aimed to uh, reshaping development rules to address housing affordability and supply for the province. And, and it's, it's again, it's another controversial piece of legislation because of the problems we're having right now and the debate about, well, urban sprawl, how do we build, et cetera, uh, and the concern about protecting farmland, protecting greenbelt. Now, this is not so much about the greenbelt, but as we mentioned to you that before, when Doug Ford struck a, a, a committee that was supposed to look into solutions, possible solutions anyway, for the housing uh, problems that we're having, I, I would actually characterize it as a crisis. Uh, they came back with their report and they gave some numbers about how many homes had to be built here to try to accommodate uh, not just what was going on now, but of course the expected influx of population over the next little while because immigration is going to be increased uh, because we need immigration to fill some of these these roles, these jobs uh, that are still vacant. So that all makes sense, and that's all part of the plan. But that committee said that, look, you don't need to go into the green belt. There's lots of available land. Well, uh, some people are pushing back on that just a little bit and said, well, what about farmland? How do we protect farmland? How do we protect uh, the grounds that, that produce our food? And, and uh, you know, if we just throw houses up everywhere, what's that going to do? And it's it's a legitimate concern. And we had representatives of the agricultural industry on yesterday, and, and they presented some, I think, some some valid concerns that need to be addressed. And, and maybe they will be. We don't know at this stage because it's, it's just early days about this. But it raises the question of how do we grow and where do we grow? We need more housing. Absolutely. And and I know that, you know, there are a lot of people on city councils all over this province right now that are going to say, well, we got to go up, not out. And uh, that's, that's one of the solutions, certainly. Uh, but it's not the only solution. Uh, not everybody wants to live in a high rise. Some people want land around them. They want a front yard and a backyard. They want parks uh, to be able to access. And so we look for residential neighborhoods and we need more of those too. 
So how do we build them and how do we how do we find a balance between uh, what needs to be done here from a housing standpoint and, of course, the, the agricultural industry in this province? Well, our next guest is going to give us some perspective on this, and we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Richard Lyle. Richard is the president of the Residential Construction Council of Ontario. Uh, Richard, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Good to be here, Bill. Thank you. Not a not a new uh, discussion. I mean, we've talked about this in the past. I know you and your organization are, are looking to this too. And and maybe what we should do is take a step back and talk about processes first of all. Uh, you know, uh, developers don't just like, hey, there's a parcel of land. Let's start building there tomorrow. Uh, there's a there's a checklist of things that have to be accomplished, as I understand it. And there are some guardrails about what can be done and where it can be done, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we. Uh, I think. Uh, some people said uh, the other day that we invented bureaucracy in Canada. So we've got lots of rules. <laughs> and in fact, uh, one of the things I was going to point out, you know, before they brought in the Greenbelt and the Growth Plan back in 2005, we already had systemic problems and we already had housing policy problems. Uh, and then the problem that happened with the uh, Growth Plan and the Greenbelt was the the balance to that was supposed to be higher densities, but nothing was really done to allow for that and so then what happened is we created an additional problem over time which has now resulted in the crisis now and that we just weren't building enough housing and of course with the dramatically increased immigration numbers because immigration is going to be about hundred percent of our population growth as of 2025 you know we've got an aging population and all that uh, because we didn't uh, deal with that you know we're where we are now so um, and it's a, a problem that's got many parts to it. And they're all being addressed to one degree or another now, which is good. Um, but there are, there are remaining issues and debates over what should be done where and what can be done where. Well, let's talk a little bit about, about the industry's approach to this, because uh, you've, you've got to be part of the solution, a major part of yeah. the solution. I mean, when, you know, when the ultimate goal here is to build enough housing and put roofs over people's heads, uh, that's thrown right on your lap, but it's got to be done with government cooperation. And I agree with you totally, by the way, uh, from the point you started off your conversation with, Richard. Uh, governments have fallen flat on this, and I mean all three levels in, in, uh, in doing this. I mean, they understood there was a problem, and they just said, okay, yeah, we'll get to that eventually. And now it's become a crisis in many areas right now. So we've got to play catch up. How do you do that? It's, it's, it's not an insurmountable task, but it's got to be done strategically and effectively. Well, it, 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 you're, you're right. How do you do that? So the building industry, you know, people that I work for and represent in the industry I've worked in uh, as a construction worker and beyond over the years, it builds everything. We build the social housing, the, you know, you name it, we build it. And for a long time, I think until now, it's starting to change a bit. We were kind of seen as the enemy. And, of course, it took years to get the things approved. Like, I've talked to people that, you know, it's been over 20 years before they can actually build on a site. Uh, and, you know, in downtown Toronto, for example, where we've had a lot of high-rise, you're looking at 7 to 10 years to get something done historically and so there's a lot of efforts underway to speed up that process to modernize it and so on and so forth and to get rid of some of the duplication the rules that don't make sense um you know like for example having high density housing as of right around major transit hubs you think well that would make sense but it was actually a problem the rules weren't in place for that and they weren't aligning 
uh, things like housing policy, with immigration policy, with transit policy. I mean, they were they, they you had these different actors doing all this planning on their own and not actually sort of being in touch with each other about okay, what do we need to do here if we're going to build a new transit line? What should the housing be like along it? You know, this kind of thing, and then things that are still outstanding like major arterial roads where there should be as of right higher density housing right along those routes because they're served by mass transit and you don't need the parking and things like that so some things have been done we're still working on other things to you know break the log jam because we've got to double our housing production it is a crisis it's going to be a catastrophe depending on how effective we are with implementing the changes that are underway and the ones to come. And then you get to things like the green belt. And I'm, you know, we're, we're very sensitive to that in our industry. You know, we, we are as climate friendly and as green as anyone in the, you know, you know, in our society. I mean, all builders have families and so do construction workers. And we, we do care about the environment, but we've got to balance some of those issues against the desperate need for housing by many. So it's a tough challenge, but we're making progress, but we've got a ways to go. And we've seen that with some of the newer developments. I, I know in the yeah. Hamilton area, and as I travel around uh, southern Ontario, we see that. Uh, there, there are new developments, but it's not just slap houses up, slap houses up. I want to make money. Uh, they're planned communities, you know, with, uh, with you know, sidewalks, wide sidewalks, uh, green spaces, play structures, bike paths within the, the neighborhood. Uh, so yes. we have learned. We're doing a lot better than we did 30, 40 years ago, I guess. And and that's, that's a good news story as far as we're concerned. But years and years ago... Uh, you know, when I was just a rookie on council, uh, a, a guy who'd been a longtime planner in the community here basically said, look, here's how this works or how it's supposed to work. Anyway, you got a main thoroughfare. You have your multi-residential high rises, uh, usually right along that route. You go in and then there's a, uh, you know, then there's the townhouse units and things of that nature. You know? And then you get into single family residential. There's a, a kind of a progression that way. Uh, and yeah. he says, that's the way it should work. But he says, the problem is Politics gets involved in this too many times, and now you get a mishmash, and it's hard. It's hard to grow when you're not following the plan. Where are we with that plan right now, and is it still an effective plan? Well, that does still exist, and there are changes to affect that. As I said, the arterial road matter has not been fully addressed yet, and and I believe it will be. It's it's going to be coming because that you know I sat on a panel 20 years ago with Paul Bedford, the commissioner of. Uh, planning in Toronto, and we were talking about this very issue, and there had been studies done, but just the action wasn't taken because, you, you, you know, you've got that thing called nimbyism and local yep. ratepayers and whatever. But, there, you know, the real control of that falls under the Planning Act, and, and uh, that's where the province can make that change, bang, and make it apply to every municipality in the province. And it, you know, it should be done because we've got to do it. Uh, you know, we're in a, in a, there's an imperative happening right now where we know that the housing situation is bad. We know it's going to get worse before it gets better because even though there are lots of good plans to fix things and certain steps have been taken, they take time to implement. So you just don't turn the tap on and presto, you produce a lot more housing, you know, overnight. So it's going to take some time. There are some more changes that have to happen, and there's some strange things happening in our world. You know, I, I just wanted to mention the Financial Times of England reported the other day. There were a bunch of reports about how the you know the Labour Party in England has declared itself 
the party of housing for working people, and they have declared that they will build on parts of the green belt around London, England, which is, I almost fell off my chair when I read it, but that's because there are other jurisdictions that have the same problem that we have. We just happen to be one in one of the worst positions in the developed world right now, which is kind of bizarre because we're Canada, but, you know, that's the way it is. But we're seeing some strange things here. So I think, you know, there's the challenge of, okay, what are the public policy priorities here? Is housing number one, housing supply right now? And I would argue that it should be. And yes, we want to build green and do everything we can there, but we have to be mindful about what the costs of that are relative to the benefits because we already build very green and we're great builders in Canada. I mean, I said to somebody the other day, tell me how many buildings have collapsed, residential structures in the last 50 years in Ontario. And the answer is zero. You know, the ones that have been built and occupied, there have been some problems, very rare though, when under construction. But the fact is, is that we build a great product and uh, we have had progressive changes to the building code to make things greener. So, you know, we're on our way, but that priority of housing supply has to be number one. And, you know, the recent debates in Toronto, I think, are bearing that up now. All the candidates are 100% behind supply. It's just a question of how do you best do it, right? Is there, I just want to comment about some of the stuff that we heard yesterday from some of the folks in the agricultural industry. Yes. There's got to be mutual respect there. And, and, and you mentioned a few minutes ago, oftentimes builders and developers get painted as the bad guys in these situations, uh, which I think is totally unfair. I think that they're much more open-minded and much more environmentally conscious than, than some people would give them credit for. But how do you build that that coexistence? I mean, we need more houses. We've got to have more houses, uh, but we need to feed people too. I mean, we, we need agriculture. We need land to grow things and 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 to raise things in too. Uh, can oh, they be? Can they be yeah. a part? The, the partnership here it doesn't need to be us and them, does it? No, it doesn't have to be. And I think one of the things is that you know when they drew the lines for the green belt, it, they sort of set up this sacrosanct zone, never to be touched again. And of course. Those lines were drawn. I mean, there was consideration that went into it, but it was kind of more or less like the way they drew the lines on the new countries in the Middle East after World War One. It didn't, you know, there were a lot of things that didn't make sense. And if you talk to some of the farmers, I mean, some problems farmers have had have been building additional houses on their farmland, uh, you know, near the existing main house, for example, to accommodate additional family members and things like that, little things like that. And then you've got the the roads through farmland, some of the main roads, you can develop along the edges there very carefully without, you know, taking up the, of course, the valuable farmland because we do need to eat. And, and, and food security is a huge issue. I mean, we get, you know, if you look at 25% of the uh, vegetables in North America are grown on 1% of the herbal land in California. And that's where we get about half of our, you know, most of our lettuce and things like that. I mean, they've got to trek it across the continent. It'd be nice to, you know, we, we need to do more about food security here and we need to protect our farmlands, but we also need to build housing. So we've got, and I think there are ways that that can be balanced. And there are pieces of land in the existing green belts which are not exactly suitable for farmland, but you could and you could build on them, but it's you know it's got to be done sensitively. And then, you know, within existing boundaries, we had the the blockage, you know, the barriers to density for so long. They're getting fixed now, but it was actually kind of crazy. So 
yes, there are. I mean, you look at the Downsview site, for example, in Toronto. I mean, you stand on one end of it, you think you're in the prairies, uh, you know, because all you can see is grass. And uh, so we do have many existing sites within the existing urban boundaries that we can develop, and, and many of them are already served by infrastructure, so it just makes sense, right? It's just that it was so hard to get to some of them and get some of these things done over the years. We really shot ourselves in the foot for a long time. I, I know we're just about out of time, but uh, you know, like yeah. guys like, like you and I have been around for a while. And I, I was there when the green belt was was initiated, and and you're right. There was a lot of pushback, not about the concept, but about what do you mean? How, why did you include that? What about that? You know, I, I know yes. the farmer that over next door, and there's nothing but rocks there. So, and you're right. There have been changes, as the premier said, but those have been changes that have been done by reassessment. And uh, and I remember talking to, to to the minister in charge at the time, Minister Kaplan, and and also. Subsequently, of course, to the to the chair of the Greenbelt Council uh, and and members of that council, who simply said, "Look, it's it doesn't say absolutely no growth there. It doesn't say absolutely nothing. It says these are protected areas, uh, which means that maybe there's a different level you have to reach. And there have been exceptions to that, and there always have been, and probably always will be. Uh, it's yeah. unfortunate that it's become such a polarized debate these days. And and I don't think that was the minister's intention, and certainly not, not the Greenbelt Council's intention. Uh, but that seems to be something that's driving the the, the narrative right now, and that's problematic. Uh, we're out of time yeah, right hey. now, Richard. I want yeah. to pick up on this, and I want to continue sure. the conversation because I mean. You know, everybody's got to work together on this to to solve this, and yes. uh, we'll we'll be touching base with you again uh, down the road to make sure that, that we're uh, we've got everybody on the same page and the message is clear. But thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Absolutely, Bill. Thank you. Take care, Richard Lyle, who's the president of Residential Construction Council of Ontario. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.